call that God has placed on his life, it is not completely different from the call that's been placed on our lives. It's important for us to continually rehearse this because we too have been called to make disciples. You remember Jesus' last words, what we call the Great Commission. It's not something that's just given to ministry professionals. It's given to you. And so when we look at this passage and we see that Paul is struggling or that he is working to make disciples for Christ, he's not alone in that. As we encounter this passage, we have to see that because it's God's will for us to make disciples, we too must struggle to make disciples. And we've also seen that Paul is working to encourage and unify believers in Christ, which also applies to us. Because God has called us to make disciples, we too must work to encourage and unify others in Christ. But wait, there's more! There's more beyond this. It's it's like one of those commercials where you see something and, man, that looks awesome. But there's more than just that. There's additional things. And if you were to order now, you get all of these things. Just pay separate processing and handling. Right? And so, so here we have Paul, and he's given us these things that he's involved in. And he's working towards. And these are the same things that we ought to be involved in and we ought to be working towards. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, he goes on to show the most important thing. If we were to stop here, really is to miss the big picture. It's important to make disciples. And we should be working on that. Our lives should be characterized by a constant participation in making disciples. And included in that is encouraging the hearts of other people and working to see them knit together. But to stop there is like zooming in to a little section of a big picture. You might be able to see a couple angles. You might be able to see a couple uh, elements that, that might uh, be thematic within the picture, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. You're failing to see the big picture. And what we have been learning as we've been going through the book of Colossians is that the big picture is about something that's very important. What is that? Jesus! Everything is all about Jesus Christ! From the beginning to the end, every element of creation, every facet of existence is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. Everything, including discipleship. And if we were to focus in on just this little picture of encouraging people and and wanting unity, that fails to see the big picture, which is Jesus Christ. And thus, when we get to the topic of discipleship, it would be wrong for us to miss the big picture and think that the discipleship is about anything less than Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, Seth, come on. Of course it's about Jesus Christ. Why would anyone say that discipleship is about anything less than Jesus? Listen, it's all over the place. Think, for instance, about children's ministry. And, and about what happens within children's ministry. I think specifically about many youth groups that I have seen or even been connected to in my life. And the emphasis ends up being about bringing your Bible and you get a certain amount of points for this or wearing a certain kind of clothes and you get extra stars for that or being a certain way and showing up at these different times and you, and you get extra uh, points for those things. And, and you kind of are pushing people in this direction, but in all of this, it's not emphasizing Jesus. I heard about somebody that was, uh, was, was trying to encourage uh, their kids to be disciplined uh, this, this past week. And they were, they were talking uh, about how they have established this point system. And in, in amongst their kids, whoever gets the most points at the end of the week gets an extra prize because they've been obedient. And if they're, and, and if they're not obedient, then the parent takes money away from the child. And, and that money goes into some kind of kitty that I guess they're going to give to a charity at the end of the year. 
And it's interesting to, to start to analyze these things because this is the very nature of discipleship within a home. But what, is, what does this have to do with Jesus? Nothing. It has everything to do with, with establishing a competition among siblings. Does that glorify God? Is that ultimately what God wants? Does God want to create a competition among people? Or is it that he wants us to encourage one another and even work to help one another and serve one another? Is the greatest value that we have within our home money? And therefore, if something is bad, we take away money. And if something is good, we give money. Is that the thing that we are to establish within our children? You see, this is, this is a very commonplace example to show that even in the midst of home, discipleship can be about something much less than Jesus. It has Jesus sprinkles on it, but it's not about Jesus. You see, all over the place, we find that there is discipleship that centers on things other than Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find as we go through this chapter is that that is Paul's deep concern for Colossae. There is a competing ideology. There is a competing emphasis, and it is pushing away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to add something on to Jesus Christ. And Paul is truly disturbed by that. And therefore, he is writing these things. Paul is determined to work for, to encourage, and to unify disciples in Jesus Christ. That is, that is what he is working towards in this letter. And in this very paragraph, you have to see that his comments are all linear. In other words, when you look at this, you see that in Colossians 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul is, and he's doing something, what? He is working, that is, he is struggling. What is he struggling for? So that people's hearts may be encouraged, that people may be knit together in love, in order to reach to an understanding and knowledge of what? Christ! In other words, Paul gets it! He sees the big picture. He doesn't focus in on just angles in some corner of the picture. He sees that the whole thing is about Jesus. That's what he's working towards. That is what he's pushing to emphasize. Paul gets it. He sees the big picture. It's all about Jesus, even discipleship. So no, he's not reaching for something beyond that. He is reaching for Jesus. He's reaching to firmly establish Jesus Christ in the hearts and minds of these people. That's what discipleship is all about. And it's no different for you and me. That has to be our goal. Our goal is not for someone to arrive at some libertine perspective or for someone to arrive at some legalistic perspective. Our goal is not to merely tear down legalism and, and to put something else in its place. Our goal is to establish and lift up Jesus Christ. End of story. That is our job. That's what discipleship is all about. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today in this passage. We're going to look at how Paul was working for others to be rich in the knowledge of Christ. And we're going to see how Paul wants to protect what God has established. And so let's look at that very first idea. Paul is working for others to be rich in the knowledge of Christ. Look at what the text says. The text says to us that he wants them to reach to the full riches, I'm sorry, to the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, right at, off the bat, as he's talking about the true content, the, the big picture of discipleship, that the point to which Paul is aiming in discipleship with these people has to do with their understanding and knowledge. Now, how does he describe it? 
He calls it riches and treasures. That's what he says. That this knowledge and understanding can be described as riches and treasures. Now, when you think of riches, what comes to mind? We think of money and mansions and complete independence and, and a fleet of sprinters. And, and so we think about all of these, these grandiose ideas typically having to do with possessions and us being able to do whatever we want with our lives. But what does Paul think about when he says that word? Paul is looking at Jesus. And he is saying that the thing that is riches is Jesus Christ. The thing that is treasure is Jesus and so to Paul, if you uh, understand what you have in, your go- in the gospel, you are rich. And to Paul, you have a treasure when you have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we had this mind in us. Oh, that we had this perspective to see how rich we are in Christ. Oh, that we would see how valuable it is to know Jesus. And more than that. To see that, that we have this in ourselves is, is one step, but oh, that we would see how wonderful it is to see this established in other people, which is what Paul is saying here. He wants it not just for himself, but for others. You see, it's wonderful if our hearts are filled up with the assurance that we have in Christ, and it's wonderful for us to know these things, but how much more for other people to know them? We should be greedy, not for money, but for the fame of Jesus. That should be our heartbeat. What if our hearts desired that for others? For the other people to be rich, not with money, but with the treasures of Jesus Christ. You see, there's more than lo- to life than the rat race for money. The real treasure is in Jesus. And there is a great reward in seeking those riches for yourself, but even more, not just having it for yourself, but enjoying it with others. The only thing that's better than one person worshiping Jesus is two people worshiping Jesus. And Jesus in me should make me want to see Jesus in others. I should have that desire in my heart. Paul is showing the true desire of Jesus. It's reflected here in this passage. Now, what kind of riches... How does Paul describe these things? Well, he says that they are, they are the kind of riches that come from full assurance. Full assurance of what? Of understanding. Hmm. How does this work? Okay. Well, notice that this understanding is conjoined. Okay. It's, it's, it's a twin and they're, they're joined together at the hip. It's not just understanding by itself, but it's understanding with something else. And we know that from what the text says because there is an and. And so it's understanding, uh, this full assurance of understanding, it's conjoined with knowledge in the next phrase. Knowledge of what? Of Christ! Of Jesus! You see, the big picture is right here in the text. It's about Jesus. And Paul is not just zoomed in in one corner. He is looking at the big picture, which is Jesus. You have riches and fullness in Him. And so when you see the picture connection here, the riches and fullness of understanding and the knowledge of what we have in Jesus Christ. Now, why would assurance of understanding be riches? Why would Paul describe it that way? I mean, like, didn't you go to algebra class and you learned about, what do you, the Pythagorean theorem, right? 
And, and after you left that, whichever grade you took that in, maybe ninth grade, you, you walk out and you didn't say, man, I am rich because I have this understanding, right? Uh, thank you, Pythagoras. And, you know, you, you're not thankful because you have this piece of knowledge or all of a sudden you understand how to read a map and now all of a sudden you, you think that, man, I'm rich because I understand how this works or you understand how to read a sentence or how to do grammar or whatever it may be. Typically, we don't perceive those things as riches, but this kind of understanding and this kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about, this is riches. This is treasure. Why? You say, Seth, when, uh, well, if we were to think about this and we were to think about the understanding of riches, we, we, we kind of have to understand it within the context of the problems of our own lives. What is your biggest problem? Your biggest problem is sin. That's the biggest problem in your whole life. The biggest problem that you'll ever experience, the biggest problem that you'll ever encounter, not only in your life, but in your spouse and in your children, it's the biggest problem. That's it. It's sin. Seth, no, no, no. My biggest problem is debt. I'm overwhelmed by bills. Listen, friend, you have only had a taste of debt. You might have $10,000 in debt or a million dollars in debt, but the debt that you owe God because of your sin is innumerable. You have to understand that the instant you die, God will call the note. The debt that you owe to God is innumerable. You say, Seth, my, my biggest problem is this cantankerous person that I have to deal with. They cause me such heartache and difficulty. Listen, man, you may have come face to face with some difficult people that are, it's going to require a lot of you, but, and they may make your life miserable, but the biggest problem is not dealing with these people, but in dealing with the one person who is the judge of the living of the dead. He stands against you because of your sin, and his divine justice will be satisfied by your eternal torment in hell. And you deserve it. God is righteous in punishing, he's doing the right thing. Your biggest problem is not these temporal difficulties, but the eternal difficulty of your sin. Thus, the greatest need in your life is a hero. You need a hero to rescue you from this big problem, which is your sin. And Jesus is the only one who can. Fully God, he was able to step down from the judge's seat and offer himself to satisfy the sentence. As infinite God, he was able to offer an infinite sacrifice to satisfy our infinite debt against the infinite God. And thus, he was able to bear the infinite wrath of God. Fully man, Jesus was a suitable sacrifice as he represented mankind as man, and he stood in our place. And by this sacrifice, Jesus saved all who have faith in him. And if you remove your faith from works, and if you stop trusting your religion, and if you stop trying to generate your own righteousness, and instead place your trust, confidence, faith, and hope in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He, at that moment, will be your hero to swoop in and rescue you. Jesus will be your hero. Now, what does Jesus being your hero do for you besides securing your eternal salvation, which is a big deal, right? What does it do for you? What does it do for you? What does it mean? It means that you get, you're granted the riches of full assurance that you are accepted in the Beloved. What does that mean? It means you're safe. You're safe. It means that the judge of all the earth 
has no further sentence for you to receive. It means that there is no more liability of punishment. None. It means that you are God's child and he wants to take care of you. It means that God loves you, that he is for you, that he, is, he wants to see your success. He wants to provide for your needs. That He is there with you and wanting to help you. God has taken you, the sinner that you are, and has accepted the sacrifice of His Son. And so you're accepted in Jesus. God wants you around. You're safe. God wants you there and He loves you. There is no condemnation left for you. It's all gone. It's all been received by Jesus. He drank the dregs of God's wrath. He drank the cup all the way down and and sucked down the dregs. There's nothing left for you. That's what this means. It means that your biggest problem, your sin, is satisfied by Jesus. And thereby he is your hero. And because he is your hero, it's not just that you're rescued out of the fires of hell, but at this very moment, you are granted the full assurance of understanding what you have in Christ, which is that you are safe, that you are cared for, that you are loved, and you are accepted in the beloved. Paul wants these believers to know and understand the full assurance that comes from what we have in Jesus Christ. You're justified. Just as if you've never sinned. Just as if you've always obeyed. And in every instant, this grants tremendous assurance. This is what it means to be rich. It's to know the truth of these things at every moment in our lives. That's what Paul is talking about here. So I realize that by God's gracious convicting spirit, I've been unloving at some point in time in my life. And I repent of my sin. And at the same time, I realize that God hasn't cast me out. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of what I have. I don't have to do penance. God loves me. I don't have to have a cooling off period. God wants me around. God forgives me of my sin. And what I have in Jesus gives me full assurance of that. So all of a sudden I learn that I've been thinking all the wrong things about Christianity. And and God is not thinking at that moment, man, what an idiot. Instead, God is is looking at me and, and I realize that it wasn't me that learned these things in and of my own strength, but God himself taught me these things. And as he taught me these things, I can be assured that because of Jesus, God is invested in my continuing lear- continual learning. He wants me to grow. God is invested in that. That grants me such assurance. That grants me such pleasure and joy right now in the present because of what Jesus has done. You know, I may be discouraged because I'm constantly struggling with the same sin, but I can be confident that God is not ready to toss me aside. He is not waiting for the moment when you trip up just the X number time, okay, 30, 40, 50. He's not waiting for that moment so now he can eject you from his family. He's not sitting like the far side comic at at his computer desk waiting to push the button that drops the piano on your head. That is not an accurate picture of God. Because of what you have in the gospel, because of what Jesus has given to you, uh, I have assurance, you have assurance because of Jesus, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I can run to him. 
And I can be confident that he will provide for me what I need at this moment to overcome this sin now. Jesus is my hero. The book of Galatians begins by describing Jesus being the one that rescues us out of this present evil age. At this moment, I can run to him and know that he will rescue me out of this present evil. He will help me. He is my hero. I don't have to worry that I've met my limit of God's grace. Oh, no. God's riches at Christ's expense has no end. And I can be assured that because of Jesus, I will never come to the end of my rope. Do you see what this does? Do you see what you have in the gospel? What you have is something that grants full assurance. It grants us such peace and joy. And that's why Paul would describe this as riches. It makes sense. Because when you experience this moment by moment in your life, you recognize that life is so totally different than what it was before. Life is so much better. The full assurance of understanding and knowledge of what we have in Christ grants blessings at every turn. That's why it's riches. Paul's right. Now, Paul goes on to talk about God's mystery. What is this mystery? What is it? What says it right there in the text? The mystery is Christ. In other words, the big picture is now we, we kind of zoom out and all of a sudden we're able to see that what we're looking at is Jesus Christ. And that is the mystery. It's the thing that was previously hidden and now it's been revealed. All that Jesus is to the people of God. Now in these last days, through our incarnate Lord, who died for our real moral guilt and was buried in space-time history and who rose bodily from the grave to give us all the riches of the gospel, that is the mystery that's now revealed to us. That's what we have in Christ. And the point of bringing this up here is to firmly establish that the mystery of Christ is sufficient. You have to see what he's talking about within this text. If you look at the verse, he is saying that I want you to have this understanding. I want you to have the knowledge and all of the assurance that this thing provides. But you need to see that it's Jesus. And how does he describe this? He says that Jesus is the one that grants us uh, all of the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, there isn't anything else beyond him. We have all of it in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, it's completely sufficient. We have all that we need. There isn't some kind of additional special knowledge or understanding that we need to add to Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the big picture. Now, all the time, we find that there is some kind of new discipleship material or new 10-step plan, or three-step plan that's going to help you out with Christianity, or if you read this book, or if you, you know, put yourself in this circumstance, or you move to this area, or you have this particular kind of diet, then all of a sudden, everything is going to be better. But Paul is saying, listen, all of that stuff is just hocus-pocus. It's bunk. He is saying that what you need to do is look at Jesus and nothing else. There is nothing else to be added. All of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. There isn't some additional plan. There isn't some additional three steps that you have to adhere to, some kind of special music that you have to have, or some kind of juicer diet. It's all in Jesus Christ and nothing else. There's nothing else to add. The big picture is Jesus. And so we find that Paul is working so that these people would have the full assurance of this Riches, which is in Jesus, the knowledge and understanding. But he goes on and he describes how he wants to protect this. If you look at the next verse, 
we see that Paul is working to protect others from moving away from Christ. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You have to see that there is a connection between uh, everything that he has said up to this point in this verse. And we know that that's true because he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, Paul is saying, I want to firmly establish you in Christ. That's what I'm struggling for. I want you to be encouraged in that, your hearts to be encouraged. I want you to be unified in the love that is declared by that gospel. And I want you to have the full assurance of that riches of knowledge and understanding in Jesus Christ. All of those things, I say this so that no one may try and take these things away. I say this in order to protect you, in other words. He doesn't want someone that's going to pull them away from what we have in Jesus Christ. This is the first time that we see in this book that Paul starts to discuss the full-on struggle that the Colossians have with this teaching. What we're going to learn as we go throughout the rest of this chapter is that this was something that was very present at Colossae, and it was threatening to take them away from what Paul has established in the gospel, what, what Epaphras has established and what Paul wants to maintain. In other words, there was a teaching that was present that was presenting these very uh, persuasive, and Paul calls them plausible arguments, persuasive arguments that do what? That dilute these people. They pull them away from Jesus. And so Paul wants to protect against this. He wants to make sure that these people have the full strength gospel, which is what? Jesus plus nothing. And what we're going to find throughout the rest of this chapter as we go through it in the, in the weeks to come is that there, are, there is an attempt to take these people captive by these plausible arguments. That there is an attempt to, to, to in, impose a man-made form of guilt by these plausible arguments. That there is an attempt to pull these people away with, by some kind of philosophy or some kind of thinking uh, through these arguments, and Paul wants to protect these people. Why? Because the full riches of, of the full assurance of riches uh, are available only in Jesus plus nothing else. The second we start to add on to that, we have something other. It's a different gospel. It is less than riches. It's less than treasure. Paul wants us to have nothing but Jesus Christ. So, Paul wants to establish these people. And this passage is, shows us the true ministry of this apostle. Paul is doing this amazing work here in this, in this passage. He is struggling for the service of other people. And I've been struck by that. Every time I've read through this passage, I'm struck by what Paul gives of his life to these people. People he's never met. People he has not seen face to face. And yet he is working for their discipleship. He wants to see them encouraged in Christ. Not just does he, does he want to see something uh, that he's just working for, for no purpose. He wants to see these people built up. The passage says that he wants to see their hearts encouraged. He wants to see them unified in the gospel. And we also find that Paul is working to protect against any kind of uh, plausible arguments that would dilute these people and lead them astray. And so what we see here in this passage is Paul is working for discipleship. And this, this leads us to a real question in two different ways. 
First of all, to test ourselves in the objective concept that's presented here. You look at Paul's life, and it is a life that is given to this work, to the work of discipleship. And it leads us to really examine ourselves and ask of ourselves, am I working for discipleship? Am I working to accomplish this in other people? Is this a priority? And the way that you find that out, Kristen and I were talking about this last week, just talking through what we had we discussed from the passage, when we think about our responsibility for discipleship of the people in our church or the people of Greenville or the people of the upstate, how do we work towards that? Paul is working to establish this knowledge and understanding. He is giving them encouraging things, trying to encourage them towards unity. How do you work towards these things? You pour your life into other people, teaching them about Jesus, giving them those encouraging words that they need to hear. So the question really is, is is it possible for me to say that I am working for discipleship? Who am I teaching? Who am I pouring myself into? When was the last time I gave an encouraging word? In other words, could I have written a passage like this about my life and my zeal for accomplishing Christ's work in other people? And if we can't do that, there is something wrong. This is not a call that is just for ministry professionals. It's not a call for people that just have a full-time salary in making discipleship. It's a call for you. So are you doing it? Can you look at the schedule of your life and say that my life has discipleship written on almost every page? Is this you? That's objective. That's an objective test. What about a subjective test? I want you to look at verse 5. If you look at verse 5 and you see what's there present within the text, Paul says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Do you have this kind of joy when you see other people established in Christ? Is that subjective feeling of joy and rejoicing present within your heart? Are you pleased when people grow in Christ? Are you excited when you see that their faith is firmly established in Jesus? If that kind of emotion is not present within you, there is something desperately wrong. You either need to become a Christian or you need to truly repent of the sinful priorities that are present within your heart. You should want to see other people firmly established in Christ. So there's the objective test. Paul is actually working for this. He's giving his life for this. Are you giving your life for the discipleship of others? The subjective test is there too. Paul rejoices in this. He is pleased. He's overjoyed to see other people firmly established in Christ. And that should be in your heart too. What we have in this passage is a description of our guide on this journey through Colossians. We learn more about Paul. But Paul is just simply displaying a heart that zealously wants to do the things of God. And as we walk away from these five verses, we should say, God, 
I want this to be me. I want to zealously seek after the things of Christ so that I might see this established in other people, so that I might be pleased when it's established in other people. I want this to be me, God. And so that's your challenge, for you to examine that objective test. Are you working towards these things? And examine this objective test. Do you want these things to happen in others? Both of them need to be true. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us this word. We thank you for the example of your servant, Paul. We recognize that Paul is not perfect, and we we don't want to push towards exemplar preaching that says, hey, guys, just be like Paul. But here in this passage, Paul demonstrates the heart of Christ, and he shows us very practical ways in which he's seeking to do the things of God. He's working to accomplish discipleship in others. We pray that you please help us to do that. As we go through our week, help us to be mindful that our life's biggest priority is Jesus Christ. And the greatest thing beyond experiencing Jesus Christ ourselves is to see other people experience the joy of who he is and what he has done. And so help us to work to establish that in others, to teach the truth, to encourage people in what is theirs in Jesus, to give those applications that push towards unity and love. Help us to take a moment to give an encouraging word, to send a text, to spend a lunch time with uh, someone that is struggling, someone that, that could use encouragement, which is everyone. Give us grace that we would work towards these things. Let us not push aside opportunities that are presented to us to teach someone else, to teach kids, to join in to do the mission of God. Help us to be about these objective things in our lives. We recognize, too, that there is a subjective component. And while we are doing the objective things, the work, it's very possible for us not to have the heart. We recognize again how desperately we need you in this. Would you give us hearts that want to see other people grow in Jesus. I pray that you'd work in us so that we would rejoice when we see others that are firmly established in Jesus. Pray that you'd encourage us in this. And for anyone that needs maintenance on these things, for any one of us that has stepped away from your call in our lives, for any one of us that doesn't truly desire these things, I pray that you'd grant us true repentance to turn away from these things and turn to you. Give us grace that we would have hearts and lives that are given for lifting up Jesus Christ through discipleship. We thank you for all of the great successes that we have experienced over this past year and the year before and what you've done in our church. We pray that you would not stop. We recognize how you have chosen to work through people And so we yield ourselves as those instruments of righteousness, asking that you would work through us to teach the truth, to encourage others in the gospel, so that in everything that we do, more and more you'd be lifted up and glorified and worshipped and revered, so that the fame of who you are and what you've done would spread throughout this region and throughout the world. We pray for that. 
And we thank you for your great goodness in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.